Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 208 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the way that witches are portrayed in horror books and movies. And this will involve spoilers for the recent movie, The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. So just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix making his eighth appearance on the show. He's the author of such books as Occupy Space and Satan Loves You. And his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His new novel, My Best Friend's Exorcism, is out now. So Grady, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here talking about witches. <laughs> then next up, we've got Teresa DeLucci making her fifth appearance on the show. Her Game of Thrones reviews appear on Tor.com, and her Hannibal reviews appear on Boing Boing. Follow her on Twitter at TDeLucci. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate being invited to talk about witches. And also joining us today is Catherine Howe. She's the editor of The Penguin Book of Witches, and her debut novel was the New York Times bestseller The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, about the Salem Witch Trials. Her other novels include The House of Velvet and Glass, Conversion, and The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen. And she also appeared on the National Geographic Channel TV show Salem Unmasking the Devil. So, Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so, Catherine, since you're joining us for the first time, let's start off with you and have you just tell us a bit about how you got interested in witches. Oh, gosh. Um, it started because I was in graduate school studying American and New England studies. And I was living in a little town right next door to Salem in Massachusetts. And I was really interested by the fact that if you go to Salem today, which you absolutely have to do for Halloween, it is an amazing place to visit. Um, but as you can imagine, a lot of their industry is about witches, the legacy of witches. There's a lot of pointy hats. There's a lot of feather boas. And it's awesome. And it's totally fun. But I felt like I'd never seen a story that talked about Salem that took the colonial attitude towards magic seriously. I felt like we're all familiar with the Crucible story and its skeptical version of Salem. And I feel like we've all seen the kind of Harry Potter version of magic and witchcraft. But I felt like we were missing a, a piece by overlooking the fact that for generation upon generation upon generation, people actually believed witches were real. And so I started to work on a novel, and that was The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, which is about what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing but the way the colonists believe witches to be. What does the world look like if having a witch trial is a rational thing to do? Right. And you're actually uh, descended from some of these Salem witches. It's true, uh, distantly. Uh, but I have Elizabeth Howe. Um, that's probably not going to be a big surprise. She was one of the first people who was executed at Salem. Um, another one is Elizabeth Proctor, um, who was supposed to be executed at Salem, but who ended up getting uh, getting by on a loophole because she was pregnant when she was condemned. And so they were going to wait very generously uh, for her to have her baby before they would put her to death. Isn't that thoughtful? <laughs> um, and so uh, so she ended up getting pardoned after after the fact. And then only a couple of years ago, I discovered I also have Deliverance Dane, who was a real person. She was a character in my first novel. And that just about made my head explode when <laughs> I found that out. Right. So you wrote a book about this person and then you discovered that you she was yeah. an ancestor of yours. Yeah. And I only picked her because I thought that her name was the most metal thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and then from listening to you talk about this, I was kind of surprised, but you said that there were no actual witch burnings in the U.S. No. or in England. Um, yeah, no. In in That was something that happened on the continent um, when witchcraft was treated as a as a religious crime, as a heresy. Here in North America, we were following English law at the time, and witchcraft was treated as a felony. Um, so it was a public; it was punished just like a felony. Um, it was it was punished by hanging. So it's a pretty common misconception. We did not burn people at the stake for witchcraft uh, in North America or in England. Right, and so you talked about wanting to sort of look at witches from more of the the point of view of the people who believed in them, and that's yeah. sort of what this recent movie, The Witch, did. And mm -hmm. the reason I want to talk about witches right now is that a couple episodes ago, we did a panel on demonic possession. And Grady, you and Jordan got talking about the evil goat in The Witch. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I hadn't seen the movie. I had no idea what you guys were talking about. <laughs> but I have since seen the movie, and I loved it, and I just, I, I really want to talk about it. So, Grady, why don't you just say a bit more about, other than the, this, the goat, what did you uh, think of the movie The Witch? Uh, what did you just think of it overall? 
I thought The Witch was so weird. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Put that at, you know, there. It's a really well-made movie. It was really a lot of fun. But it's so weird because it, it takes witches very seriously. I mean, it takes that sort of uh, 17th century, I think it's 17th century view it is. of witchcraft very seriously and really portrays the folklore um, realistically and literally. Uh, and it's funny because then it just becomes a movie not really about anything. Um, because ultimately, when you look at the movie, I've never seen a movie about witches or witchcraft or witch hunting where the point of the movie seemed to be we just didn't kill enough witches soon enough. Like, <laughs> like if the people in this movie had just taken accusations of witchcraft seriously and responded by killing those accused of witchcraft, they would have been fine. <laughs> Well, I mean, Teresa, what do, what do you think about that? Or what do you think of The Witch overall? Um, overall, I love that, um, you know, I started getting served these Facebook ads for the movie with the trailer with Black Phillip, the goat. And I'm like, what the hell is this goat? Why does it keep appearing on all my social media? So then when I went to check it out, um, I was just blown away by how unsettling it was and how and how beautifully it was filmed, too. I, I haven't seen a movie quite like that in a long time. Um, I think it had some of the most beautiful cinematography using natural light since The Revenant. You know, I thought both of those movies showed nature and how terrifying and threatening it could be. Like, the forest was a personality and a character all its own. But then ultimately, what made me really enjoy the movie was the ending, which I felt was super feminist, super unexpected. For that movie, and I came out of the theater feeling really energized and wanting to see it again because I was just blown away by that ending. Well, Teresa, I want to ask you, what did you find feminist about it? Well, she chose, you know, the whole movie, Thomason, who is the teenage girl, she's become a scapegoat for her family, you know, as things start to go wrong for them. And I just felt like because she was a beautiful young girl who was coming into womanhood, that was seen as a threat. You know, by the time, you know, the ending when the mother is screaming at her, being like, you know, I see the sluttish way you looked at your brother and you made him look at you and you were going to do it to your father too. And it's, it's out of her control, you know, puberty. It's out of her control. She's a young woman coming into herself in a religion that says she is less than a man she's weaker than a man just automatically just by her nature like they're all corrupt in nature according to their beliefs but i think with the puritans women kind of had to speak through to god through a man like like their husbands and their fathers and their priests they didn't have a direct line to god because they were a woman Man was made in God's image. Woman was made from man. I don't know if I entirely agree with that, Teresa. I mean, that you're, you're correct that it was an incredibly hierarchical society and that that hierarchy was often based on, on gender, but it was also based on class and on race. One of the things that made the Puritans interesting was that they had a very individual relationship with God. It's one of the reasons that um, literacy was such an important part of that religion. Um, in fact, Puritans founded both Harvard and Yale, and it was partly because they were originally founded as schools of religious instruction. And so Puritans were encouraged to have, to read the Bible, to have their own relationship with the Bible. Um, and in fact, the modern day descendants of Puritans are the Congregationalists, and they're called that because of the quote unquote congregational organization of each community of, of faith. And so, but you're, you're 100% correct that Thomason lived in a world in which her father was the head of the household in which uh, the father was the head of the household as Christ was the head of the church, um, and in which she was, you know, her opinion was taken to be less important and uh, than, than it would have been otherwise. See, Catherine, what do you, what do you make of Grady's idea that the, the message of this movie was we should kill more witches and then we'll be safe? I mean, it, it was interesting to me. First of all, I agree with everything everyone said about the aesthetic of the film, and I know that Robert took the research for it so seriously. I mean, the way that he used language and actually a lot of the, the monologues, the monologue that the son speaks when he is kind of, before he coughs up the apple, when he's in this kind of ecstasy of, 
of possession. That I actually recognized it. It was it was taken from a, a speech from a primary source that I'd read, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, so that was all kind of incredible. Um, I did. I agree with Grady, though. I mean, ultimately, the plot is there's a witch. She messes everything up. The end. (laughs) 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 Like, there's no one thing I found myself wondering was how and this is probably just my own interest in in historiography and in the ways that our 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 understandings of reality change from time to time. Um, I would have been so curious to see a version of that film, maybe like an edit of that film where we never see the witch at all. If we don't see her even once, if instead we see people wandering in the forest, if we see, you know, if we see the explosion of the barn and the kids are missing, if we see Thomason walking nude into the forest at the end, I feel like from my perspective, that would have scared the pants off me um, if we never saw the witch whatsoever, because it would have made it an open question of what is really happening to this family? Is this a family falling apart in the face of religious mania? Is it a family being stalked by a wolf that they simply can't see? It would have made, it would have been so terrifying. And so often in the early modern period, witchcraft is used as a way to explain otherwise unexplainable phenomena or instances of bad luck or instances of bad feeling. And I, I am curious to see what, how that version of the film would feel. It'll probably be on the Blu-ray, the witch free. <laughs> <laughs> like the witch without the witch, like Garfield without Garfield. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Teresa, I never thought about that, though. I think you're right in the sense that if you do identify strongly with Thomason, there is like a feminist reading of the movie. I guess to me, because the movie posited that witches are old, ugly ladies who eat babies and live in the woods and screw up your life, I sort of didn't see that reading. But But I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the whole movie, she is, again, like, scapegoated for all these bad choices, which point first bad choice was made by the father to leave the plantation. Now, I would like to know, because I don't know that much about Puritans, how hardcore was he that you get kicked out of the Puritans? (laughs) (laughs) Like, honestly, like, how, you know... Well, Rhode Island was founded by people who were who were kicked out of Massachusetts. (laughs) I mean, it's you know, there were a lot of a a lot of sort of religious dissension and and religious distinctions and also people moving deeper into the wilderness to to claim more land for themselves. I mean, at this time point, um, Maine was part of Massachusetts. It was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was called the Eastward because which seems strange because I always imagine Maine as being up. uh, But actually, relative to Massachusetts, it's to the east. And, uh, and so there, the idea of, of splintering away from a community is not all that out of hand. Well, cause it's funny because, um, th- this movie first came to my attention because it was endorsed by the Satanic Temple. Mm-hmm. And so presumably there are people out there who feel that there's a pro Satan interpretation of this movie, right? That it's not just the witches are evil and we need to kill them all. They're like, like Teresa's saying, there's, there does seem to be a, a substantial empowerment interpretation of this movie. But it's a super problematic interpretation because it's like, even if you go along the reading that Thomason is sort of rejected and has to turn to this group of outsiders to feel any like power in her life or any validation, it's still a group of outsiders who steal and eat babies. Like, I, and I feel like once you belong to Different a group, strokes. Yeah, once you belong to a group that's eating babies and turning them into body lotion, you kind of lose any moral authority you may have had. Right, you're being so bourgeois. <laughs> now, I could see just knowing uh, a little bit about what I do about the Church of Satan. Um, yeah, I read this really fantastic interview with the, the founder, Anton LaVey, in Rolling Stone, like a number of years ago. And you know, he said Satanism was mostly about uh, selfishness, like owning your selfishness and your self-interest. Like that's what the devil did when, like, it's a reading of what the devil had done when he got kicked out of heaven, and you know, he was acting in his own best interest. So that's why I thought it was kind of interesting that um, the Church of Satan kind of endorsed the witch, because if you look at Thomason from that way, you know, again, scapegoated. She's in this you know, family being blamed. She chooses to go with the witches. She's kind of, you know, she's choosing the the taste of butter to live deliciously. 
you know, that's on her own terms and she's kind of accepting it. And then that ecstasy at the end when, when she's rising, you know, it's her fulfilling, uh, this wish to act in her own self interest for a change and not have that fear of condemnation on her all the time, which, you know, I thought that, that was an interesting interpretation. Also, you know, the Church of Satan kind of loves publicity. So. <laughs> They're like professional trolls these days. They're kind of great. One thing that I found kind of intriguing, talking to Grady's point about, about life stages and the way that it represented women at different moments, and both Thomason, who was on the cusp of being a woman, and also the, the unnamed crone that we spot uh, making body lotion in the, in the, <laughs> in the woods, um, sort of ironically, perhaps, um, Statistically, the age of a woman who was most likely to be accused as a witch was a woman in middle age, um, you know, from between about 40 to about 60. So actually, people within the film, anyone who should have been accused as a witch, statistically speaking, was a mother. And so if you look back actually at, at, uh, at the Salem trials, for instance, it was girls Thomason's age who were accusing women of Thomason's mother's age. Um, and so I think that the crone archetype is something that we actually get later. We get that in 19th century fairy tales to some degree, the idea that witches are all old and bent. Um, but typically the, there is a tangled relationship between the historical idea of witchcraft and power and women's power. Right. I thought it was so interesting when I heard you say that, Catherine, because it, it occurred to me, like, it seems like every witch that I can think of in a movie, they, they, they're virtually all super sexy or super mm -hmm. old and scary. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Hollywood has this tendency to make middle-aged women invisible. And it seems like there's a kind of an interesting, um, you know, kind of clash there between the historical reality and Hollywood reality. Definitely. Most definitely. See, speaking of pacts with the devil, this is kind of a funny story, though, because I got an email from the Satanic Temple saying that they were going to have a screening of the witch. And they, I would get to see their Baphomet statue that they crowdfunded. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, it looks good, actually. Oh, I love oh, it's, that it's one. Yeah, and I wanted to see it gorgeous. so much. And so I, I followed the link, and I went to their website, and I couldn't find how I got my invitation to the party. And the only thing I could find is there was this link, and it said, sign the devil's book. And so I thought, well, maybe that'll get, <laughs> get me on their mailing list or something. Oh, so I, Dave, so we're going to miss you. Oh, no. So I did that. And then, like, next thing I know, I have, I'm on their list of of Satanists in the New York area, right? Oh dear. So, uh, so that's how that's how the devil got me. So you want I just us want to call someone for you, or <laughs> you're still a protected class. Satanists are still protected class under you know a court of law. Like it's all good. I wanted to ask actually, Teresa though. Um, speaking of the movie The Witch, because I was reading some of the, I thought the responses to the movie were interesting because like some people thought it was terrifying, like I did. The power actually went out while I was watching it. And I was totally terrified <laughs> watching it. But then a lot of people said they didn't think it was scary. But then also a lot of people really liked it, and a lot of people didn't. And I noticed that on Rotten Tomatoes, this movie is ninety-one percent among critics and only fifty-five percent among viewers. And I was huh. wondering, as a film critic type person, if you have any thoughts about that stuff. Yeah, sometimes I, yeah, I, sometimes I feel especially, you know, and I hate to always kind of play this angle, but when something gets a lot of acclaim for being feminist, whether that's right or wrong, or like the critics kind of feel like, oh, hey, this is like a really cool, like girl power, interesting kind of movie, which I don't think it was technically straight up just that. Sometimes I do feel like IMDb, like internet forums, like Rotten Tomatoes, where people can vote. I kind of feel sometimes, you know, it's that Gamergate effect, like MRA people just kind of like gang up and downvote, you know. Um, not that that would be the only reason that there would be such a disparity between critics and user reviews, but sometimes I do think that could kind of factor into it if there's a certain narrative about how this movie is received um, as a response to that. Um, also, yeah, I mean, for your average, you know, what you watch, like Paranormal Activity or I don't know, because I don't watch a lot of horror movies like that. Like I like quieter horror things like The Babadook or, you know, or this or Green Room. You know, A24 has been putting out amazing movies like the last few years. Um, that, yeah, this wouldn't be like a 
you know, you're like, oh yeah, witch movie, and it's gonna be gory, it's gonna be scary. People are saying it's so scary, and then you go and you find this Puritan family with thick accents. You might have trouble understanding, and a lot of ominous shots of the woods. You might be disappointed. <laughs> well, it sounded like Grady that you had kind of mixed feelings about the movie, and. Well, I think, you know, look, I definitely think Teresa's right. Anytime a movie has a feminist read, I think you're going to pull out people who just object to it on principle, uh, and they can often be very vocal. But I also think part of the problem that I have with the movie, and I think other people might have, is it's incredibly one-sided in the sense that that family never stands a chance. And when you think they stand a chance, it just turns out you're stupid and you don't <laughs> understand how screwed they really are. And I think there is a feeling when you watch a movie that you want to see sort of like uh, people who maybe where the battle may be one sided, but they struggle hard and they achieve some kind of victory or validation. And to watch a movie where it turns out we're all just suckers, everyone's defeated by evil, and the only thing you can do is give in to it uh, if you want to survive there is kind of like, it does take the wind out of your sails a little bit, you know, like Teresa's talking about coming out feeling really invigorated. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and I like feel a, a castration threat here or something. But like, like I came out of it going, oh, we may as well just lie down and wait for the witches to eat us. I mean, the dad got off relatively easily by dying the way that he did. If you, in the Malleus Maleficarum, there's a whole lot about how witches are able to steal men's penises. So, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Well, but the penises get to all live in boxes together and like baby <laughs> birds, which kind of sounds fun for the penis. <laughs> but I mean, did you, you don't think Thomasine had a choice at the end? Like, couldn't she have gone to the, um, the town? She would have just starved to death. Like, I mean, and why is she going to go to the town? Who's going to be accused of killing everyone? Probably her or, you know, nothing good's going to yeah. happen to her. She would have been bound out to service, which is what they were planning to do with her, which is what poor families did all the time, which really sucked. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, so, so I get some of the objection in a way, cause you like, you're watching this movie that's, that's really great. And then, uh, so depressing. <laughs> that's why I think I liked it because it has some of that nihilism to it where it's like, well, fuck it. We're all doomed. <laughs> you know, like bad things happen. And I think actually seeing the, the witch and, you know, in all our different forms and stuff, I don't know. It just, to me, it added this weird, like weird with a capital W kind of fiction element to it which I'm always interested in where it's the order of nature subverted and you're kind of helpless and small in the face of it you know that that sense of awe like there's something out of the natural order of the world that I can't explain I either stand against it or let myself be lost to it and I think that is nihilistic but I thought it was also kind of refreshing to see that in a movie like I, I just wasn't expecting it it's so funny though like you know because like they do posit that the witches are somehow more in touch with nature and the forest and all these things in the film when I mean the worldview at the time was that witches were completely unnatural they were the least natural thing of all which I think is so weird that now they're seen as the I mean I guess that's all that witch cult stuff but they're seen as sort of like these pagans who are just really in touch with the earth. But they were viewed as the most unnatural thing possible because they had taken the most unnatural act possible. Did you think this movie was scary, Grady? Because, I mean, there were no jump scares really in this movie. But man, when the goat talked, I like jumped out of my skin. And I don't think I've ever jumped so much just from somebody speaking in a soft voice. Yeah, it, this movie has one, one thing that really they did well is it's had so many unexpected moments. I did not expect the baby lotion so early. I did not expect yeah. that apple. I did not expect the Satan to appear. I didn't expect the folklore to be so, to keep so much fidelity to how it was, supposedly. Uh, yeah, I mean, so much of it was unexpected. Yeah, it was funny. I was watching it again last night and we had a house guest who's a screenwriter in China. So he works on a lot of Chinese horror movies and looks at, um, you know, just film from a screenwriter perspective for him and how it would play in certain markets. So he had never seen The Witch before and, and he likes horror movies. So I'm like, oh, let's watch it. And, you know, he just kept remarking on how he's like, nothing hap nothing's happening. He's like, but I'm so scared. <laughs> like, and a good part of it was just, the music, the music, like, let's recognize that the soundtrack was, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. It really, 
Betch, best witch movie soundtrack since Suspiria. <laughs> you know, I thought there were some definite like goblin nods in there. Maybe I'm crazy, but like the clanging and the the hollering and stuff like that. It was really, really effective at creating dread. Um, but yeah, I could see why people wouldn't necessarily find it like super scary. It's just like a pervasive dread. And then, like, punctuated with these moments of, like, extremely bizarre, unsettling, disturbing imagery, like the knife above the baby. And, like, that one really bothered me, you know. And then the next scene to see her pounding, ugh, it was gross. <laughs> there are some really intense images in that film, it's true. The crow is what sticks with me. Oh, can I say that that, that actress, poor Lisa Aaron, always breastfeeding <laughs> something really mean. <laughs> like, that actress really plays to a type, and it's a very specific, uncomfortable type, this poor woman. <laughs> poor Kate Dickey. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's one of the things that was so strong about the movie is, you're right, the imagery is so strong and so squick-making, and yet it's all pulled out of this past kind of folklore and accounts of witch trials and stuff that are generally considered sort of musty and dusty these days and, and cliched. Um, so it's interesting they could sort of make that stuff have a frisson to it again. I mean, Catherine, was there anything in this movie that you thought was not historically accurate? Um, I mean, I don't want to nitpick all things considered. Like, like, I don't think that that is the point. I mean, it's not a, it's not a documentary about, <laughs> about witchcraft in the past. Like, the farm should have been many times bigger, you know, that like little, little things like that. None of that is important though, because the point of the film is to, to talk about the development of this one fictional family and to put them in this kind of historical context. And I thought that, I thought that that was done very well. Um, I, I'm intrigued by the relationship between the family and the woods. I mean, I think that that is actually one of the most historically accurate parts of it, that people who are living in, you know, who were colonizing North America, Anglo people who were colonizing North America, had it both relied on the woods and also had a tremendous fear of it. And actually, if you look at one of the best history books on Salem in particular, it's called In the Devil's Snare by a woman named Mary Beth Norton. Um, she makes the case that a lot of the early modern English accounts of the devil use the same language that they use to describe the, the native population, the first people who were here. Well, that's interesting because when I used to go, I used to go hiking a lot with my family as a kid and you would always hike by Devil's Panhandle or Devil's Tower, all these things. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was really cool. But then I eventually found out that those were just all the sacred sites to the native peoples. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, there was, and I, I'm going to get my names and dates wrong, so I'm leaving them out. But there was a belief, and I think it was relatively obscure, that, that America, North America, was the devil's country. And that the native peoples who lived here had been lured to it by the devil originally many hundreds of years ago. And that this was his place. This was his hangout. And it had to be reclaimed. Um, I guess one other thing I wanted to say about the movie, Teresa, is you said that your friends had nothing happened. And a lot of the um, reviews from people who didn't like the movie said something similar. Oh, it's so slow. Nothing happens. And I, I feel like if you diagram the plot of this, that everything, every single scene moves the plot forward. It's just it does so in sort of like an understated, quiet way. But it's not, I don't think there's any scenes in this movie that aren't directly advancing the plot. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's just a quiet sort of plot. I mean, what I thought was great about the movie is it's only an hour and a half long. I'm like, thank God, like, why does every movie need <laughs> to be two and a half hours? <laughs> you know, especially a horror movie. It could be really effective to keep it short and keep everything tight and necessary to the story so yeah so i guess when he said nothing's happening he meant it was more like no one's getting owned like he kept like, no one's getting owned yet oh now the ownage is gonna come it's gonna come and then at the end it's like you know when black philip speaks you know then he like lost his mind He's like, oh my god like this is crazy um yeah because that scene was so impressive so amazing i think that's when i really it was just like my jaw fell open in the theater and I was like, oh my God, like that man, like you never really see his face. You could see it more when I was watching it last night, I noticed it. But the first time you really just see his hands on her shoulder and talk, like hear his voice. 
Mm-hmm. And you're like, he must be the most beautiful, most seductive looking man she's ever seen. Like we can't really picture him because it's better to have that in our imagination. Like who would Satan be to you when he comes to you to make you an offer right in his book? And how would he seduce you? I mean, when you think about how dry and really void of pleasure their lives were, that butter is something that would be like a luxury and a revelation to you. (laughs) I know. It's like, oh my God, I've tried the whole 30 diet in like two weeks (laughs) and like had, you know, had like a piece of chocolate. And I was like, oh my God, this is the sweetest, (laughs) best thing ever. So I'm like, can you imagine like not tasting butter for months or apples? Like they keep wishing for apples. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't had an apple since England. You know, like England is the land of apples and butter and Shakespeare and fun. <laughs> and glass windows. Yes. And they're over here mm-hmm. living these very hard scrabble dour lives. Well, it's funny because that scene, I watched, I actually watched that scene with my girlfriend a couple of times. And I, the first time I just thought it was all dark in the background, but you can actually see the figure a little bit. Uh, If you look carefully and as he circles around behind her, I think what happens is that you see him step with a human foot and then he steps with a goat leg. And, uh, you know, that didn't register for me if if I'm if I'm seeing it right. That didn't register for me when I first saw it. But I thought that's such a like I think it did register on some subliminal level because I was so creeped out by that (laughs) by that scene. Um, All right. Cool. So I like I said, I really, really liked this movie, The Witch. And I feel like I ha- I can't really think of a ton of witch movies I've loved in recent. What about how did you feel about Blair Witch? David? Well, I, I actually really liked Blair Witch. I feel like that was a really long time ago. Um, yeah, I feel like it was the last time I saw a witch movie that that I found really exciting. I mean, I remember watching it. It came out right after I graduated from college, and I saw it in New York City. And I was living up by um, Inwood Hill Park. I had to walk past the park to get to my apartment and my friend and I were kind of clutching each other, trembling as we walked past Inwood Hill Park is this very like last sort of stand of wooded Manhattan. And it's really eerie and creepy. Um, I felt like, I don't know, I was thinking a, a lot about the Blair Witch Project while I was watching The Witch, but maybe that's testament Well, because it's my... another movie where quote unquote nothing happens, but it's terrifying. Yeah. 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 Well, in another movie set in the woods. Mm-hmm. Set in the woods with a yeah. small a small cast having an intense experience that they are isolated from the rest of their community and uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons that I fantasized about seeing a supercut of the witch yeah. without the witch in it because in Blair Witch we never see the witch. I was and just it about to scary. say, yeah, Blair Witch <laughs> is your dream movie. <laughs> never well, you know, it's funny because speaking of that, you know, The Conjuring isn't the ghost in The Conjuring a witch? Yeah, like Bathsheba yeah. or something. Yeah, and used to no great effect, I thought. I mean, I like The Conjuring fine, but like, it doesn't feel like a witch movie and she doesn't feel like a witch the way something like The Witch or The Blair Project or Black Sunday or Suspiria do. Yeah, I, I agree because um, I think in The Conjuring, maybe she was too, it just seemed too much like traditional horror tropes. And I, and I like The Conjuring a lot, actually. I thought it was really atmospheric. But it didn't have that element of weirdness to it that like Suspiria does, you know, Blair Witch did, where it's something just off kilter, but in in a different way, like a way we don't see a lot in movies, you know, like not always outright. Yeah. Like, you know, like they, they could show killing a baby, but to, to hint at it is 10,000 times worse. See, Teresa, I haven't seen Suspiria or Black Sunday. Are those worth watching? Oh, absolutely. Um, I really love Suspiria. I'm a huge Dario Argento fan. Um, he uses soundtrack, vivid colors, and his stories have such a... Suspiria in particular has this, like, a nightmare logic. And I guess that's what it is about witch movies that I like when they're good. They have this dreamy trapped in a nightmare logic where things might not make sense from a plot perspective, but emotionally they do. And that's what Suspiria is. It's, uh, you know, it's directed by Dario Argento based on a screenplay from his wife, uh, Daria Nicoletti, who's a famous uh, Italian noir actress. And she had a relative who went to a, like a boarding school in, in Germany in the, in these woods that were supposedly haunted by a witch. So that's where Suspiria came from. Uh, Daria's, 
you know, family folktale about this witch. And it's so, it's so brutal and colorful and garish. And, you know, it's part of this trilogy of just, you know, the three mothers trilogy, you know, the Suspiria is the mother of size. There's Mater Tenebrarum and then uh, Lacrimosa. Yeah. He finally made that one, I think in like the late, uh, the early 2000s. It wasn't quite as good, but it did have this corrupting mother witch force ruining lives wherever she went, which I thought was really creepy and effective and super violent because it's Dario Argento. I wonder if in movies, the more effective witches are the invisible witches or the witches you see less of. Like in The Conjuring, she's front and center a lot, but like Blair Witch Project, The Witch, or, or Suspiria even. I mean, the witch is largely unseen because the fear of the witch, I feel like, is often a fear of conspiracies and things moving in the shadows and the invisible forces behind daily life that seek to corrupt and overturn it. So I wonder if, like, the less you see a witch in a movie, the cooler the witch is, because that's where that original, like, concept, that urge comes from, maybe. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I would agree with it, too. I mean, the reason that Arthur Miller hit upon witches for, you know, for making his ultimate statement about communism was because the central question of witches in the early modern is who is and who isn't? How do we recognize who who or what a witch is? Um, It was an ongoing problem for people at that time. And it's like, it gets to a fundamental sense that we have among the essential unknowability of other people, people that you think that you know. Well, it's why I think, you know, it's a story I hated the first time I read it. And I've come back to it as an adult and realized that I was an asshole and it actually is great. Which story uh, is that? Young Goodman Brown, uh, Uh the Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is just such a simple story. Dude goes for a walk. He gets caught up in sort of a black mass and discovers that basically everyone in his community belongs to Satan and is a witch (laughs) or practices black magic. And then suddenly he's back in normal times and now he has to sort of like, he's returned (laughs) to his home and it's like, I don't know, is my wife a witch? Is (laughs) is our leader, is everyone a witch? And there is something really destabilizing about that, um, that, that conspiracy idea that witches seem to embody on some level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, James the first, he, you know, he was killing witches left, right, and center. But I think a lot of that had to do with like the idea of they were secret, the idea at the time that people were secret Catholics, you know, and, and they had to be, you know, rooted out and, and destroyed or converted. And that fed right into witches, you know. Yeah. Um, well, James's writing about demonology is also partly his attempt to, to reassert the authority of his claim to the throne to, to show yeah. like intellectual mastery for his position as head of the Church of England. Um, and it's it's funny, some of the comments I've read about his book, Demonology, say that like none of the witch hunting stuff that he has to say is in any way original. He just like lifts ideas from other people who were writing around the same time. Um, but he still has to show that he knows his stuff in order to demonstrate his authority. Well, it's weird because he took witches super duper personally, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, people probably know this, but like, you know. He really got after witches in, in Britain after he thought that witches tried to drown his bride on her way, Anne of Denmark, on her way over to like get married to him. And like the first thing he did when he went over to get her and bring her back is like, I'm going to kill all the witches and had a big trial in Scotland where I, I don't know if it was 70 people were accused or if there were 70 executions, but, um, somewhere in there. So, like, yeah, between the threat to his throne, the threat to his wife, the threat of Catholics, like, he just hated them on a really deep level. He had a lot to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So, Catherine, are there other witch, like, fictional treatments of witches in books that you want to recommend? I mean, there, there's certainly, there, there's kind of a little bloom of Salem fiction around the same time that my first book came out. Um, one of them was uh, The Heretic's Daughter, um, which came out. I think in 2008, and is also a Salem story. It's it's about Martha Carrier, and uh, Martha Carrier, who was accused sort of later on during the Salem Panic, and was called the Queen of Hell in the course of her trial. Um, she was from Andover, and most people don't realize that actually more people were accused in Andover than were accused in Salem Village. I mean, the panic started in Salem Village and then spread very quickly. Um, that one's really good. The Lace Reader is a more contemporary uh, Salem story by uh, Brunonia Berry, who's a Salem writer. 
And uh, a lot of people really enjoyed that book and, and connected with it really well. Um, you know, it, it kind of depends on what what your taste is, what you're in the mood for. I really enjoyed The Witches of Eastwick, which I think most of us first think of the film, you know, with Cher uh, or whatever and Jack Nicholson. Um, but it was, before that, it was a novel by John Updike. And the thing that's interesting about The Witches of Eastwick novel version, he actually did a sequel, too, called The Widows of Eastwick shortly before he died. Um, it's it's also very beautifully steeped in knowledge about early modern North American beliefs in witchcraft, how it worked, what it could do, what it could function. And in typical Updike fashion, it's you know very like drenched in sex and like tomatoes compared with testicles. And I re- very was Updike. just thinking that I remember that's what I remember because I read yeah. Witches of Eastwick when I was really young, and I'm just like, what? And you were grossed out. And I'm like, yeah, I was like grossed out, like. And we're Italian, so there's always lots of tomatoes in our house. Like, now you can't look at a tomato. I can't unsee it. <laughs> I know. Uh, but it's it's worth a look. It's for someone who's interested in this stuff and is interested in maybe a more ra- magical realist rather than a fantasy approach to witchcraft, um, that is one that I often point people to. So, so I haven't read the novel, but I just watched the movie for the first time yesterday. And How's there it was, hold up? Uh, I don't... It's weird. I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, I mean, I could tend uneven, I would say, but I, I would say I enjoyed it. But I think it's more, I found it more fascinating than enjoyable. But mm-hmm. it's just like, there's just so many weird things in the movie. It's kind of just like a weird object of uh, uh, observation or something. Um, but there was a line I wanted to ask you about, Catherine, because there's a part where Jack Nicholson's character says that the witch witches were hunted by the medical profession because they wanted to remove the competition of midwives. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if there's any historical basis to that at all. Um, that was a hypothesis that was advanced, um, I want to say, in the 1980s. And the short version is there's not much to hold that up. Um, the long version is that when we talk about early modern beliefs about witchcraft, we're actually talking kind of about two different cultural phenomena. One is the belief in witchcraft on the legal level, the public belief in witchcraft, the trial kinds of beliefs in witchcraft, the stuff that's talked about by theologians, the stuff that's legislated against. Um, and that is different from, but kind of related to something else, which is called like more folk belief in witchcraft, cunning folk. Um, cunning folk were in the early modern period would be someone who offered occult services for a fee. So like dousing for water was something that a cunning person would do. Um, Charms to find lost property was a big part of cunning folk business. And so there is this sense of, you know, there is a widespread sense of folk belief that is magical in basis that is kind of walking the line of what is morally acceptable. Because in English, the word cunning, as you I'm sure know, has a has kind of a morally ambiguous sense. It means really smart, but it also means sneaky, potentially. So it's not it's not a totally positive connotation kind of word. And so there is, in some cases, this sense that a, a cunning person could be, you know, someone you would want to you would want to watch out for. For the most part, people who were accused as witches were accused not because they were of this kind of netherworld interstitial moral space. People who were accused as witches were Christian people who didn't fit in with our culture for whatever reason, you know, because they were argumentative, because they were too, you know, they were too poor, they were too grasping, they were too hard to deal with, they were, you know, mentally unsound for whatever reason. It is true that in the early modern period, that is when medicine was beginning to professionalize. And it was, it was a professionalization that was, of course, on gendered lines. Um, but it was not by any means a, a conspiracy <laughs> or anything like that. Um, there is something to be said about the gendering of knowledge and the hierarchies of power within that gendering process. Uh, but for the most part, if you were accused as a witch in the early modern period, it's because you were the wrong kind of person and you had the wrong attitude, not because you were doing anything Wrong. Right. Well, and I've heard you make this point, which is actually a point. It was Grady said something similar in our demonic possession panel. But these people who are accused of being witches have never become 
rich and powerful and beautiful and stuff exactly. as a result of their deal with the devil. So, which, which is actually a point that one of the most best known skeptical writers made in the early modern period, Reginald Scott, made this exact point. He's like, why, if witches are able to make a pact with the devil to get whatever they want, uh, why are they all, he, the phrase he uses is bleary-eyed. <laughs> why are they all like, like poor, bleary-eyed, distracted people? Um, and that's exactly his point. Reginald Scott makes the case that in the early modern period, people who were accused as witches were at the fringes of society. Um, and to our ears, that sounds like a completely rational point, but unfortunately it didn't land until many centuries later. Well, it's, it's interesting because it wasn't the, the, I thought the theological response to that was, um, that, cause Satan is tricky. Like there was this yeah. sort of, I, I remember this thing that like, witches they were fooled. Yeah, they were all fooled. Yeah, and, that could work and, for know, anything. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, a great they, retrofitting. <laughs> yeah. But like they made a deal with the devil and the devil's taken their advantage. You and know, the they devil think, tricked. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. So like I said, so I watched The Witches of Eastwick yesterday, and then I also watched The Witches based on the Royal Doll novel and The Craft. Uh. Oh, and, boy. The craft. Yeah, the craft. Teresa, yeah. you said that you liked The Craft, right? Do you want to I talk about the craft. that? Oh, yeah. The Craft was super fun. I mean, 90s goth girl in high school. Of course I love The Craft. Feruza <laughs> Balk was, like, aspirational. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because I uh, – so there's some scenes that, like, I always remember there with um, – Nev Campbell's character, she, she had been disfigured in a, in a fire and people are mean to her because she's ugly. But then as soon as she gets her, you know, well, Hollywood ugly, but then as soon as she gets her witch powers, you know, it, with her coven, she becomes like super hot and starts wearing midriff tops and <laughs> making like the people who are mean to her, like her main bully, like go bald and like how scary that was. Like when I was a teenager, I was like, oh my God, like, what if I had this power, would I use it for good or bad? You know, I think as a teenager, I was fascinated with being able to cast glamours and, you know, kind of a way of getting, getting more power when you feel really powerless, especially as a teen, like any kind of teen. You know, it's like the craft was like a way better version of that 80s movie Teen Witch with Robin <laughs> Lively. I don't know if anyone... I um, saw that yeah. one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. One of the, one of the best rap battles in all of cinema history. <laughs> right. Uh, but the craft was just so much, so creepy. And that was like just so much about Feruza Balk's performance. Cause she sells you on the crazy from like the moment she bugs her eyes out. Like she is fantastic. <laughs> well, so wait, so what makes it better than teen witch? Well, it's a hell of a lot less cheesy. Um, it it's not as dated although i guess you know if, i guess it depends if you know if the craft isn't like a great movie but it's fun teen will uh teen witch is just really bad and that makes it kind of hilarious to watch um they actually did a really wonderful reading of it on how did this get made podcast that i highly recommend checking out like if you have any nostalgia for that movie at all like you will laugh your ass off at like the stuff they point out about how dated it is and how awful it is. And anti-feminist, right? <laughs> oh yeah, totally. You know, all she wants is to have, you know, Brad, the the high school football captain and without his consent. And then it's, it's also kind of creepy then too. Yeah. It's just not good. The craft was a lot better because at least it did deal with some of that stuff being like, yeah, maybe love spells are not morally okay. Maybe we should not do that. That's kind of dangerous and a dick move. <laughs> I mean, Catherine, what did you think of these 80s witch movies? I don't remember Teen Witch. I think I, I, think I saw it, but if so, it would have been in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. A lot has happened since then. I mean, I think about the craft a lot, actually. One of the things that I really, obviously, I saw it as a teenager and loved it and sparked to it because I felt like I was a weirdo when I was in high school as well. Um, one of the things that I really like about it, though, is that it does get to this thing about about hunger for power, which I think comes up again and again, both in like both in the history and in the popular culture aspects of it, about power and women and the fact that women can't seem to get it through normal means, and uh, and what happens when when they step outside the carefully drawn boundaries that our culture has drawn for them. Well, that's one of those things about those movies that always I can't stand is that 
they always turn out to be cautionary tales about power. Yeah. You know, this sort of be careful what you wish for. Oh, you've got power and had to go outside society. Now look at you. Um, you're killing everyone you love, which is why I love movies like Blair Witch Project or The Witch or even Suspiria to some extent that are just, these are witches. Don't fuck with them. Right. <laughs> I feel bad for men in a way. There's all these wonderful witch movies. What do guys have? Guys have Julian Sands and Warlock, I guess. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with Warlock. I don't know, Teresa. Guys have uh, have Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got the patriarchy. Come yeah. on, we don't need yeah. your movies. I think they're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll take your sympathy. <laughs> You'll take Julian Sands, is what you're saying. <laughs> So, Teresa, when you were watching The Craft as a teenager, did you believe in magic? Like, did you ever think, like, oh, I should try some of these spells or something? Or No, I mean, again, token goth chick in a, you know, I was living in Brookfield, Connecticut at the time. And, there, you know, all the weirdo goth kids kind of hung together. And, yeah, after The Craft came out, I always thought it was kind of obnoxious because then a bunch of friends became, oh, we're Wiccans. And, you know, <laughs> and they would actually quote, like, you know, we used to get like the Mormons on the street or, hey, you know, kids, let me tell you about my Lord and Savior. And I had one friend who would launch into like verbatim the speech from the craft, like God <laughs> and the devil are playing on a football field. Wicked. You know, we're the football field. We're nature. And I just kind of like roll my eyes. And oh, yeah, there were there were times in graveyards with candles and incense and stuff. But I never believed like that. No, I just thought it, I was too cynical even then. <laughs> you know, if if witches were real, they wouldn't be going to New Milford High School. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In Twilight, the uh, the vampires <laughs> unaccountably keep going to high school even though they don't have to. I don't understand. They just really want to learn trigonometry. <laughs> they're they're going back to when they peaked. So. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, speaking of cautionary tales, so I, you know, I wanted to watch a bunch of witch movies in preparation for this panel. So I just typed witch into iTunes to see what came up. And I, I mentioned I, I watched a couple movies, but there were a couple movies I was not brave enough to watch. We have The Last Witch Hunter at 16% on oh Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hansel and Gretel at 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Season of the Witch at 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> have any of you guys... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I seen, seen those. I reviewed the last Witch Hunter for Tor.com. Oh my god, it was. I'm like, please. The headline of my review was, "Please let this be the last Witch Hunter," because <laughs> it was so it was terrible. There was well, witches. Yeah, you know, it was Rose Leslie from Game of Thrones. She played Egret, and in the last Witch Hunter, she was the last of the witches or whatever. And she was super cute goth chick who could kind of, she worked at a bar and could kind of make the lights go out or something. Everything was awful. Um, Vin Diesel. Uh, I love Vin Diesel. Like, unironically, I really do. But this was no pitch black. You know, it, it had moments of like wanting to be like a D&D &D campaign, but like with a few witches thrown in and there was no logic or rhyme or reason but not in a creepy weird way like Suspiria it was just who the fuck is writing this why is this happening it was painful because they wanted to buy boats that's why <laughs> <laughs> well the scariest thing I saw in the theater was the guy who was sitting two rows in front of me with his bare feet up on the seat in front of him yes <laughs> Season of the Witch, I think, I think that's that George Romero movie yeah. that he made early in his career. It's like a bored housewife in the suburbs and she mm -hmm. becomes a witch. Oh, no, it's, this, this is the Nicholas, the recent Nicholas Cage one. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but if you want to talk, that. if there's another season of the Witch you want to talk about, I mean. No, 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 I haven't seen it. I just, uh. Yeah, I saw the George Romero one, but it was a long time ago when I was in high school. I don't really, I remember falling asleep on it. I remember being really excited <laughs> because it was like, yay, George Romero. Dawn of the Dead and and then falling asleep, you know, after about 45 minutes of housewife drama. Um, I don't know if Season of the Witch is a remake with Nicolas Cage. No, it's like a medieval adventure movie. Oh, oh, no, no, I have not seen that does, one. Does Nicolas Cage play Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General? That would be awesome. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I'd pay money to see that. Um. There is a great movie though, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna pronounce it wrong, uh, V, V-I-Y, it's a Russian film from the 
I want to say the seventies, but I might be wrong, but it's based on a folk tale. Um, and it's about, a I think it's a traveling theology student and he stops in a village and they say that he can stay there, but he has to sit and sleep in the church to guard the body of a young woman who's been accused of witchcraft, who's dead. And she has to lie in state for three days before they'll bury her. And um, each night he's visited by different sort of supernatural things. And it's all these great practical effects. And of course, she is a witch and she is a pain in the ass. And ultimately, she does have to go to hell. But uh, it's really great. And like the witch that we're talking about, it's a very straightforward, takes the folklore very literally and very seriously and manages to get a lot of like charge out of it, which I thought was interesting. And the fact that it's made in the, in, in the Soviet Union when the height of communism is kind of fascinating. I mean, is there something to be inferred from the fact that if you just search for witch movies, some of these really low-scoring things are among the first things to come up, that there aren't a ton of good witch movies, or it's really hard to make a good witch movie or anything like that? I think it's hard to make a good witch movie. I think it's easier to write a good witch book, because in a book you have so much room to play, and you have greater room for nuance. I mean, that's, of course, my biased position because <laughs> I write books, um, but... That's my impression. I mean, I feel like with with a movie, ultimately, you have to make the decision, which is something we keep bringing up with all the movies we've talked about. Is the witch real? Do you do you show her? What does that mean? No. Yeah, and I wonder with the success of the witch, if we will see more witch movies come out to try to get on that bandwagon. Like everything kind of comes and goes in waves. I don't think witches will be as popular as zombies. Yeah, well, it seems like the zombie formula is easy to imitate, and imitating this movie, The Witch, seems very, very difficult to me. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would agree. I, yeah, I don't think there is a witch formula. And I think, like Catherine's saying, you have to make a choice with a witch movie. If your witch is real, then your good guys are the people hunting and torturing them to death and yeah. killing them. If your witches aren't real, then you've made a witch hunt movie, and you may as well just remake The Crucible again. And and if the central interesting motivating factor about witchcraft and witches is unknowability and unrecognizability, I think that that is a very hard concept to convey in a visual lexicon. Yeah, and I agree to, to Catherine's point about books doing it well. There were, you know, when I was thinking about witch books, um, one of the first ones I thought of was The Croning by Laird Barron. It's kind of a cosmic horror you know, children of old leech, like a kind of Lovecraftian ancient evil from out of time. Deity is around, but it's the cult on Earth who worships him. That's the problem. And it opens with the really creepy retelling of Rumpelstiltskin and moves into modern day where a man's wife is very mysterious and possibly causing all of these unnatural things to happen around her. And I thought that handled the mysteriousness of witches really well. And it, it took place a lot, um, in the Pacific Northwest in the forests and stuff. So again, you're getting like weird cairns in the woods and, you know, caves and stuff like that where darkness could come. Um, the other book that I thought did it really well recently was Hex by Thomas Old Havolt. Uh, he's a Danish store, uh, he's a Dutch novelist. And he's won, you know, the Hugo Award. And they, you know, this is his debut novel translated for American audiences. And it is about a small town who's under the curse of a witch who's got her eyes and mouth sewn shut. And, uh, it's really creepy because the teen, you know, the elders of Black Springs, this town have quarantined the town. So the hex won't get out, but the teens are so tired of being cut off that they kind of go viral with these hauntings and it becomes like a big deal and the town kind of spirals into like, like, a, like a death knell for the, the the town. It was really well done. Really creepy. Wow. That sounds really cool. Um, I mean, Catherine, you were talking about writing witch fiction yourself. Is there anything more to say about that just in terms of your approach or challenges or just interesting experiences you've had while writing fiction about witches? I mean, I've now written two fictional books and edited one nonfiction book about witchcraft. So I've spent a lot of time. I think the reason I haven't seen as many of these witch movies as you guys have is because I just like am full up on <laughs> witches already. Like my disc space for witches is totally full. Mm -hmm. um, 
one, I mean, there are many things that I enjoy about it. The, my approach to writing historical fiction is maybe a little bit different from others since I came out of an academic background. I spent a lot of time in the archive. Um, I really enjoy you know, trying to really understand the, the mental world of the people that I'm trying to write about. What I really enjoy, I mean, I have some fun experiences of things I've heard from readers. I mean, one of the things that's neat about writing fictions, I get to hear from readers. And uh, because I think I write about these sorts of things that happen in a space between reason and belief, um, I hear a lot of stories from people. People like to tell me stories. Like my most recent novel, The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen, is a ghost story. And the number of people who then come up and told me their own encounters with ghosts has been amazing and really fun and interesting. Um, so once I was at a signing, I was signing some books, a guy comes up and he says, thank you for your talk. I really enjoyed it. And I say, thank you. And we're making pleasant chit chat. And I'm asking how I should make the book out and stuff. And he says, you know, I have memories of being burned. And I say, oh, <laughs> wow. When, when was this? And he thinks for a second. He's like, I'm pretty sure it was the 15th century. I think it was in Germany. I was like, all right, great. Well, thank you so much for coming to the talk today. That was, that was awesome. Um, well, at least he didn't say he was burned in Salem, because then you would know. Well, um, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to undermine anybody's sincere feelings about themselves. <laughs> Primary source. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's, it's neat. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy is thinking about different moments in history when our, our understandings of reality were totally different. And I think that I enjoy that in part because it, it's a reminder that our beliefs about how the world works are totally historically contingent, and that holds true for us, too. <laughs> and so I feel like it's a neat way to kind of get back in touch with a sense of humility in relationship with history and human knowledge. Well, so yeah, and uh, speaking of your hard disk being full, Catherine, you, you were telling us before we got started that you actually spent five years working on the Penguin Book of uh, Witches. <laughs> I did. Off and on, I worked on the Penguin Book of Witches because I started working on it when shortly after Physic Book of Deliverance Day came out in hardback. And so while I was promoting that book, I also was writing The House of Velvet and Glass and, and starting to work on um, the Penguin Book of Witches. And I'd never done a primary source reader before, so I was kind of learning by doing, which was pretty intense. And so it did take a long time, but it finally came out um, in 2014. And I'm really happy with it. And I think readers are really happy with it. And um, I always tell people to make sure they read the footnotes because I put humorous asides in some of the footnotes. Hmm. Uh, all right, cool. So yes, we're pretty much out of time. So I think we should start wrapping this up. So does anyone have any final thoughts about witches or anything else they want to add? I would like to live deliciously. <laughs> <laughs> I would like everyone to read more witch fiction. Yeah, I just want to say we never even talked about cute witches, like bewitched or charmed, like witches who are fun-loving and happy. I'm bummed for witches. <laughs> Kiki's delivery service. Aww, Kiki's a witch. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> witches can be a lot of fun. Well, this was our witches in horror, so we'll have to do <laughs> witches in cuteness some other time. <laughs> I think the upshot is that witches like to party. Isn't that yeah. Not the concluding point. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could see why people would, you know, be tempted to join. Yeah, <laughs> you get all the best skincare lotions and you get like a fun party, people to hang out with Discounts in the woods, on whenever. Airfare. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I really don't see any downsides, you know, unless you had a baby. You sell your soul. You know what's that? I haven't seen it lately. <laughs> Well, it sounds like David's already written his off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For nothing, just to yeah. get on a mailing see, list. That's, like a that's, how I, that's how sneaky Satan is. I didn't even get to see the Baphomet statue, and I sold my soul. It would be pretty Curse nice you, if they Satan. sent you a nice box of like really high end butter, like artisanal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the production company did do that in the press kits. Oh, really? Yeah, they sent Brilliant. people like artisan butter, like branded really with cool. the witch. I'm telling you, A24 <laughs> Studios is killing it. I mean, they put out <laughs> Ex Machina, The Witch, Green Room, which was fantastic. You know, for a horror movie, it was a, it was a really good one. And they're coming out with Swiss Army Man, which is that famous um, Daniel Radcliffe as a farting corpse that Paul Dano rides off an island. So that looks pretty interesting. <laughs> 
you know, you kind of can't make it up. And they just came out with The Lobster, which is um, a really unusual science fiction romance drama, like really quirky. You know, highly recommend that one too. They keep putting out really interesting movies and The Witch, I think, really blew them up this this year. You know, between Ex Machina and The Witch, they've been getting a lot of great projects. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Teresa DeLucci, and Catherine Howe. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah, thank you for thinking of me when you thought of witches. I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Teresa DeLucci, and Catherine Howe for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including my fave Packer, who writes... Always seems like great guests. The host asks questions and gets out of the way. So big thanks again to my fave Packer for that great review. Special thanks as well to Trevor Nemeth, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.